0: If you would like more information about Jubilee Church, please visit our website at jubileestl.org. Now those who are scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out, and many who had them and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was there was much joy in that city. Now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Now when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the, laying, through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you Pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. Now when they had testified and spoken of the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Well, good morning. morning. It's good to see you all this morning. You doing all right? Good. It's great to hear. Well, I'm excited to continue on in our book, uh, our series through the book of Acts, we uh, the first five chapters in Acts, we were really looking at how did the Spirit of God birth the church of Jesus Christ. And these last few weeks, we've been looking at how has the Spirit of God multiplied and expanded the ministry of Jesus Christ, not just through the apostles, but now through others as well. And uh, that we saw last week and the week prior to that, uh, that instead of just the apostles serving the daily food to the widows in the community, which I think is a wonderful example of servant leadership, that the apostolic leaders of the church of Jesus Christ are taking time out of their day to serve food to widows. But the need has become so burdensome and things are beginning to be neglected that they say, we need help. And so they ask the community to appoint for them seven men who are full of the Holy Spirit and full of wisdom. And one of those men, Philip, who we're looking at today, ends up in Samaria And Philip is not only in Samaria, but uh, interestingly enough, he is preaching the word of God in Samaria to large crowds. He's healing the sick, and he is delivering those people from evil spirits, those who have evil spirits, which at first glance, as a modern Western person, I would imagine that most of us would be most shocked and most doubtful of the fact that this man, not Jesus, you know, God's son, we expect him to do it, but this man, is healing sick people and commanding evil spirits to get out of them so that they can be in the freedom of Jesus. In our modern Western minds, we struggle with that, if we're honest. We're skeptical of this whole supernatural realm because we think we've figured it out, and science has proved that wrong. But in reality, most cultures throughout history, including today, still believe in this world, and we still see signs of this supernatural world today. The most shocking thing in this story to its first hearers would not be that he was doing miracles. It would be that he, a Jewish man, was in Samaria. Not just in Samaria, but preaching to Samaritans. And not just preaching to Samaritans that they repent, but actually bringing good news to them. And these Samaritans were receiving it with joy. This would have been astounding to the first hearers of this story because there was a pretty significant divide between Jews and Samaritans. The, the divide spanned religion, race, culture, politics, you name it. There was, a, there was a hatred and a mistrust that existed between the two races that had lasted for over 1,000 years. I won't get into all the details, but the Samaritans were a mixed people. They were part Jew, part Gentile. The Jews, they hated anything that was mixed. They were big into purity. They wouldn't even wear mixed clothing, much less accept a group of muggles. They would not so much as sit on something that a Samaritan had touched. They wouldn't dare to speak with the Samaritan. Instead of going through Samaria to get to Galilee, which would have been the quickest route, they would go around Samaria on foot, adding a day, maybe two to their journey. Jews didn't do what Philip did. Not to mention the fact that Samaritans weren't the nicest to Jews either. As Jews would head on their path around Samaria to Galilee, Samaritans would jump them and rob them and steal the gifts for their temple because they had competing temples and the Jews retaliated and they destroyed the temple in Samaria. It's like high school rivalries on steroids. People died, you know, it's like, oh, this is bad. And people didn't do what Philip did. So how did Philip overcome his ethnic and cultural predispositions? How did he, a Jew, find it in his heart to go to Samaria and preach to these people the good news of Jesus Christ? It's one word that changes it all, it's the gospel. The gospel creates a unity that we long for, the unity that we're all searching for in our society that we're trying to get and yet can't seem to maintain. One sociologist talking about race in our country said it this way. They said, we know how to forcibly integrate society. We know how to pass laws to guarantee fairness. What we haven't done is be able to do is to make races and cultures love and embrace one another. Politics can't do that. Only the gospel of Jesus Christ can do that. Because the gospel tells us that we all are sinners who have fallen short of the glory of God. No matter what your race race or ethnicity or gender or socioeconomic status, we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. None of us is more or less impressive to God. And we all have one savior and one Lord if we will receive him. And his name is Jesus Christ. And he came as the son of God to die on a cross for our sins, in our place. And three days later, rose from the dead, ascending to heaven to sit at the right hand of the throne of God, until one day he would return again to gather up for himself a people for his own possession, that he might make a new heavens and a new earth, that we might reign with him and live with him for eternity in his presence, where there is no more sickness, no more pain, no more death where God himself will wipe our tears away with his hand, where God will be with his people and we with him, there will be shalom once again, the thing our hearts long for, perfect reconciliation and peace with God and with one another. This is a beautiful thing that Jesus has come to do. And in Christ, there is no longer Jew or Greek. There is no longer slave or free. There is no longer black or white. There's no longer rich or poor. There's no longer liberal or conservative or third party, whoever they are. (laughs) There's no longer pro-vaccine or anti-vaccine. There's no longer homeschooling or public schooling. That's not our primary identity, although we may do those things. Our primary identity is Christ, which means that we can unite and relate based on Christ, no matter what is different. What the gospel doesn't do is it doesn't take all of these people and just wash over them one color and one way and one ethnicity and one culture. It doesn't do that. We maintain our differences and yet we have one united voice crying out. Revelation tells us that salvation belongs to our God who sits upon the throne and to the Lamb. Jesus Christ himself. Not only has Jesus purchased this unity within the church, but he's called the church. It must happen here first. If it doesn't happen here, if if we are not united in heart and mind and spirit and in brotherly love for one another, if our hearts aren't knit together in love, it will never go out there. But if we do, he will send us out to bring that hope and that reconciliation to the world around us. I will. I've been waiting for that for so long. Notice that Philip doesn't just go to Samaria. Philip, along with the rest of the scattered believers who are scattered because of persecution, preached the word everywhere they went. You love that the persecuted church under the hand of oppression and violence and hatred. I mean, Paul, who's now an apostolic leader, preaching the gospel everywhere, is the one who's ravaging the church. It's a word in the Greek that means just an insane cruelty, like a lion ravaging his prey, dragging them out of homes, throwing them into prison and killing some. He becomes a Christian and goes home to home to home, not to drag them out and throw them into prison and kill them, but to encourage them and strengthen them in the Lord Jesus Christ, to equip them to go into all the earth and preach the gospel. The scattered church under this kind of persecution and violence and hatred went about preaching the word. It's like it's what they did. It's like it's the air they breathe. They just went about preaching the word. Their city changed, their job changed, their relationships changed. The one constant in their life is that they went about preaching the word. Luke describes Philip using the word carioso. It means to herald. A herald is an official messenger that brings good news. A herald represented someone else. A herald came not on their own authority or their own word. They came on the authority and the word of someone else. Behind their message stood great strength and authority and power to back it up. But it wasn't their own strength or authority or power. It was the power of another. So when we go to bring this message of the good news of Jesus to the world, we don't go on our own strength or our own power or our own authority, our own winsome personalities, our own impressiveness. No, no, we go based on his authority and his power and his presence. Luke also uses the verb evangelize five times in this passage, which simply means to bring good news. The verb was only ever used in this culture to describe a messenger who would go village to village to village, city to city to city, preaching to everyone that was there that a new king has been established. Jesus and and the early apostles, they pick up this word to evangelize and they use it to describe what, what all Christ followers are doing everywhere they go. They're declaring that God has sent a new king, the king of heaven and earth, the one who created the world, who's benevolent and loving in all of his ways, the one who gave his life. He doesn't require the life of others. He gives his life for his people that he might give them life and joy and peace and righteousness forevermore. They're declaring a new king the God of the Christian Bible, he's a sending God. The Father sent Jesus, Jesus sent the apostles, and the Spirit has been sending believers across the world ever since the resurrection of Jesus. John and Linda Lanferman, who planted this church back in 1997, left a beautiful home, a nice retirement that they were getting ready to head into, to go where God had called them to go to move to St. Louis from the Lake of the Ozarks where they didn't have a lake, where they didn't have a farm, where they didn't have a boat to give their lives to plant a church like this, a multi-ethnic reproducing church that preached the good news of Jesus Christ all throughout the city and to the ends of the earth. And ever since uh, we've been together as a church, we've been a sending church. There've been people that have gone out from this church to Tacoma, Washington, Atlanta, Georgia, Chicago, Brooklyn, even a young couple that were interns at this church have now gone to Oman to preach the gospel to the Muslim speaking world. We've been ascending church throughout our history and we will continue to be a ascending church. There will be many who go out from us to take the gospel of Jesus Christ to new places and people. But, but this isn't just a different city or a different nation. This is our neighbors. This is our coworkers. This is our family. This is going to who everyone that God has put in our lives that we might bring the good news of Jesus to them, that we might heal the sicknesses in their life and deliver them from the evil that oppresses them. This is going across the office to a coworker's desk to hear how their day's going and show them some love. This is kneeling at your child's bedside to pray for them that they might come to know the love of God in Christ. This is praying for your spouse, maybe who's not a believer, that they would come to know the saving grace of Jesus and then lovingly, respectfully living with them as the aroma of Christ so that maybe through your life, they would taste and see that he is God. We go because he came. The one whom the angels bowed before singing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God almighty who was and is and is to come. That same one is the one who left heaven and came to earth that he might take on flesh that he would die for our sins and rise from the dead. He left the glories of heaven to come for us. That's why we leave. Whatever comfort, whatever joy we may have in this life, we lay it aside for the sake of Christ. And there's a promise for us if we do. Matthew chapter 28, after he gathers his little band of believers and commissions them to the end of the earth, he makes them a promise. And what that promise is not, is it's not that everyone will like the message that you bring. The promise is not that family members and friends, coworkers won't push you out of their life because you're a Christ follower. Not push you out of your life because you're a terrible coworker, or push you out of your life because you are a little eccentric in the way that you bring the message to them, or push you out of their life because you are just rude and. Fault finding, no, no, not those, but push you out of your, their life because you bring the message of Jesus to them. That we be both grace and truth, salt and light. The, the promise isn't though that everyone will like you. The, the promise isn't that you, will, you may not lose your job for representing Christ in your entire life. Those things may happen, they always have. Early believers were imprisoned, their possessions looted, and many of them died. Every apostle was martyred for the faith. We need that to sink in. Our Savior himself died for the message that he proclaimed. If we think that being a Christian means that we're just kind and everyone likes us and life's so easy, we've missed the Christianity of the Bible. God's people have, have always been an oppressed people who were pushed to the edges of society. And if we truly represent him and speak for him and walk with him, some will reject us. But the promise is that he will be with us. I'll be with you, Jesus said, to the very end of the age. Until he returns, he'll be with us by his spirit. And when he's back, it says that we won't even need the sun anymore for God himself will be our light. He's with us. Something profound happens when we are insulted for Christ. And instead of backing down, we choose to be associated with Jesus. We're in First Peter this week in our church, church-wide Bible reading. And I came across this in First Peter 4 as I was reading it. And it's, it's been there since I've been a Christian. And I just never, it's never stuck out to me like this. It says, if you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rest upon you. If you are insulted for the name of Jesus, if you speak on his behalf, to friends and family members and co-workers, and they reject you because of your message and you're insulted. I have a friend that uh, recently came to Christ and I would always share the gospel with him at the uh, coffee shop that he works at. And he told me after he became a Christian, he said, when you left, we'd always make fun of you. And I said, who's laughing now? (laughs) And I didn't even know I was being insulted. You may not even know you're being insulted. You probably are. If you're insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. There's an intimacy with Jesus and a resting of the spirit upon your life that you won't experience if you don't obey him and opening your mouth and your life to those who are far from him to speak of him. And when we do and some push us out. There's an intimacy that comes. There's a spirit of God resting upon us that we only experience then. Recently, I heard of a gentleman in one of our locations who felt God leading him to share his story and the story of Jesus with all of his coworkers. And uh, he was terrified, but he went to his boss and he said, hey, can we gather the whole staff? I have something I want to share with them. I want to tell them my story. And uh, his boss said, yeah, but kind of put it off. And he pushed it again and kind of put it off. And Finally, his boss said, yeah, you can do it. Just tell the staff, you know, if they wanna stay after the meeting, they can stay and you wanna tell them something. And so he did it and he thought, man, none of these guys are gonna stay. And uh, 15 to 20 people stayed while he told his story and the story of Jesus to his entire staff. Who knows what God will do with all of those gospel seeds that went out in that moment. There's something of great joy that happens when we share our story and the story of Jesus. But notice Philip's approach when he went. He proclaimed a message, number one, namely that Jesus is the Christ. And secondly, he demonstrated God's kingdom, namely that he healed the sick and he delivered people from evil spirits. So, one, what's the message? What did Philip preach to the Samaritans? Well, there's three passages that kind of point to this. They're they're different descriptors, but they all point to the same thing. So verse four says, the scattered believers went around preaching the word. That's the first descriptor. They went around preaching the word. Verse 12 says, Philip preached good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ. The second descriptor preached good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ. The third descriptor, verse 35, says Philip told them the good news about Jesus. I love that one. It's just so simple. Told them the good news about Jesus. So what do we see in these three verses? Believers opened their mouth and they spoke a message. Secondly, the content of that message was the good news of Jesus Christ and his kingdom coming. So what is the message of the gospel? You could say it a million different ways, but here's one. In our sin, we earn death. In his life, his death, and his resurrection, we can receive forgiveness and life in his name. Simple message. That message is so simple, a five-year-old could share it. Actually, a four-year-old could share it and is sharing it. Uh, Greg, one of the elders here, he's been telling me about his daughter, Maya, who is going to all her schoolmates saying, do you go the way of Jesus? And her mom's been talking to her about the way of Jesus. And as her mom's talked with her about the way of Jesus and taught her what it means to be a Christ follower, she wants all her friends going to family members saying, why don't you go the way of Jesus? which is way better than you having to do it, you know? So <laughs> a few weeks ago in a, in a message, we shared a simple illustration, three circles of how you can share the story of Jesus with a friend. And uh, I didn't even know this, but someone was in the audience, Addie, who's 11 years old, who's being baptized today. And uh, Addie, was, Addie was doodling during the sermon. Can you believe that? And turns out she was drawing the three circles to communicate the gospel, the message of Jesus to her friend at school. And I get this text from Mike and Jess that week saying, Addie shared this with her friend with a picture of it. And Addie, you don't know this, but that was the highlight of my year. That was just the best part of my entire year. I think we could learn a thing or two. I think we could learn a thing or two from Maya and Addie of what it means to obey Christ, to speak good news to others, to have the faith of a child, to believe that God might use our lives in the lives of another person. The gospel came in proclamation, but it also came in demonstration. What did that look like? Well, Acts chapter eight, verse seven, for unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice, just your average Thursday, came out of many who had them and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. I love that when the gospel comes, there's joy in the city. The city's filled with joy. They've just heard good news. They got all their sicknesses healed. All the demons got cast out. It's a good day. Let's have a barbecue. When Jesus came, he came preaching and bringing the kingdom of God with him. The kingdom is anywhere where the rule and reign of the king is. The kingdom of God, Paul tells us in Romans, is righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. The kingdom of God, we read in Revelation 21, is where there's no more sickness, no more death, no more pain, where God dwells with his people and they with him. The kingdom of God is a people and a place where God's rule and reign has been fully received. It's when we, the kingdom of God comes upon us when we receive his rule and reign in our lives, in our hearts, and in our community. Friends, we can welcome and usher in the kingdom of God by our humble, hungry hearts for him. Salvation, it's a biblical word that means deliverance. Deliverance from the results of the curse that brought about sin and death into all of society and the world itself. This is deliverance, not just by the forgiveness of our sins, but this is deliverance in every sense of the word. This is mental, emotional, spiritual, relational deliverance. God is delivering us from every effect of the curse in Christ. Some of that deliverance we experience now because the kingdom has come in the forgiveness of our sins, in a new life in Christ. Our spirit within us is born again. We're all born spiritually dead, Ephesians 2 tells us. But in Christ, we're made alive by the spirit of God, regenerating something in us. Our sins are forgiven, we're made a new in Christ, we're born again. Sometimes we experience physical healing. Sometimes we experience relational reconciliation. But not all the time. Because the kingdom has come, but it won't fully come until that day in Revelation 21. The good news is that day is coming. So the question is not, if you're sick in this room, the question is not, Will you be healed? If you're in Christ, by his stripes, you are healed. By his stripes, you will, there will be a day where you will stand before God and you will not be sick anymore. There will be a day where you get a resurrected body that is so glorious, there's not a magazine that could compare to it. Where you can dance and sing and shout as long as you want. that day has not fully come. And yet, when we pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven, something happens every time where God's kingdom breaks in on our situation. I have family members who have been chronically sick for almost 10 years, and I pray for them all the time that God's kingdom would come and his will be done. And, And yet, when we pray, we don't say, God, will you? We say, God, we know you will but would you do it now instead of then? Or can we just get some of it right now? And so Philip comes preaching and healing. And I want to just tell you a few stories of healing to encourage your faith. I was with a group of pastors uh, last week, maybe the week before, and we were praying for healing in the city. I just love this gathering because all these pastors across the city, different places, different races, different ethnicities, and We're just praying for healing in our city, for unity in our city. You know, Psalm 133 says, where brothers dwell in unity there, God commands a blessing. When we dwell in unity, God commands a blessing on our church. We're just praying for healing in the city and the pastor stands up and he says, I wanna tell you the story of a young man in one of our churches that uh, he's a high school basketball player, really athletic, had a minor injury in a game, and you know, suffered a little concussion, but uh, then for the next two months was laid up in bed. He couldn't sit up, he couldn't speak. He just was essentially, uh, he, he would get really dizzy, he just kept vomiting. They couldn't figure out what was wrong with him. They had no diagnosis. And he gets a call from a Christian friend who talks to him about the kingdom of God and Jesus Christ and the power of Jesus to heal and says, can I just pray for you over the phone? Prays for him over the phone short little prayer. And he says, amen. He says, okay, try sitting up in bed. He's believing that God might actually do something. You know, it's not just, hey, well wishes, but no, we're praying that God might actually do something. And uh, he says, try sitting up in bed. See what happens. See if God maybe did something. And the boy sits up and he starts crying, not for pain, but because he feels normal for the first time in two months. He gets out of his bed and starts walking around. His dad's like, what's happening? And his disposition has returned to normal. He seems fine again. His dad takes him to his mom's work. And the mom at first just sees someone in the passenger seat, has no thought of mind that it could be her son. And then it takes a double glance. This is my son. He's normal. He's fine. Later that night, the boy's playing basketball with his friends, fully restored, just the healing power of Jesus coming in a moment. We've got a, yeah, praise God. We've got a woman in our, one of our other locations that uh, had some terrible health issues, had some intestinal bleeding, bled for two weeks straight, significant amount of blood. And doctors couldn't stop it, thought she was gonna have to have surgery, all these things. And a woman in the location said, God, I just pray for you, and prayed that God would heal her. It's the humble prayer of faith. And she says, in that moment, she felt something. She went home, the bleeding had stopped, hasn't bled since. From that prayer, supernatural healing. Last year, we had two women in this location who had serious intestinal issues. I mean, I'm talking, been to the hospital, couldn't eat a lot of things. Through just the prayers of other members in the church. Miraculous healing, restored to normal. It doesn't always happen. There's many we're contending with in prayer. God, would you let your kingdom come? And yet sometimes it does. I heard one pastor in the UK, Nicky Gumbel. He said, if you never pray for the sick to be healed, you'll never see the sick healed. (laughs) But if you pray for the sick to be healed all the time, who knows? God might heal some sick people. I like that. There's a pastor who's no longer with us. His name is John Wimber. He saw a lot of healings, a lot of deliverances. He said, faith is spelled R-I-S-K. Are you willing to just take a risk for God? Just put yourself out there to share the good news of Jesus with someone. Just put yourself out there to pray for that person to be healed. Who knows what God might do? It's when we step off the cliff and we trust him to bring a stone under our foot. That's Faith. But none of this can happen without the power of the Holy Spirit. Without the power of the Holy Spirit and his presence and power at work in and through our lives, we can do nothing of our own accord, which is why the second part of this passage is so important. I wanna take you there. So Acts 8, 14 to 17, I'm just gonna read it to you again. Now, when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John. So mark that, they had received the word of God. They had done that. Peter and John came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. They've received the word of God. Now they're praying that they would receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. What? I'm losing my voice. This may just go bad soon, but uh, what? They've received the word of God. They were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. I mean, Peter, weren't you the one who said in Acts chapter two, verse 42, that if you repent and believe and you're baptized, that you'll receive the gift, the promise of the Holy Spirit, all who believe in him. And yet you're saying that they received the word of God. They believed they were baptized and they haven't received the Holy Spirit. Peter, what are you talking about? It seems like you're saying too. you said that every believer has the spirit. Say every believer has the spirit. Okay, so the same power that raised Jesus from the dead lives in you and I. To preach the gospel, to heal the sick, to deliver people from evil spirits, that power lives in every Christ follower. And yet, huh, they haven't received the Holy Spirit, although they believed. What could he be saying? Well, the key word is fallen upon any of them. So this word fallen, the Greek for it, I'm gonna mess this up, is epipito. It literally means to crowd in on someone's space. Another meaning is to fall upon their neck. And so you think about a hug. You could kind of do the Christian side hug. Hey, good to see you, you know, and just kind of hip bump a little bit and onto the neck. Or you could fall upon someone's neck. I mean, you could just get all up in their space and bear hug them. And that's how I hug my daughter. When I pick up little Summer Grace, I just get in there and just oh, fall upon her neck and I hug that girl. And as long as daddy will let her, I will snuggle her and I will hug her. But there's a day coming where that's not, she's not gonna let me. So, I'm getting, I'm getting as much hugs from her as I can right now. So this is a up close and personal, intimate, invasive language. The second word is receive. The Greek here is lambano, which simply means to take hold of or to obtain or receive something. But it's not a passive receiving, like, oh yeah, if you want to. No, it's an active receiving. I want that bear hug. And so the posture of the Christian is not, yes, God, please. The posture of the Christian is, oh, Lord, will you please send your spirit on me? And you pray that with your whole heart, that God might send the spirit to fall upon you so that you can experience his presence and his power at work in your life, so that you can have that assurance of the Holy Spirit, the seal of the spirit, as Paul says in Ephesians That we might know that we know that we know that we're sons and daughters of God Himself, the perfect Father in heaven. No matter what father wounds you're living with in this life, you have a perfect Father in heaven who wants to fall upon your neck and shower you in His love. But it's not just about us receiving these experiences of the Spirit, like a little Christian cul de sac where I just experience him and experience him and experience him. And I just come on Sundays to get another little experience of the Spirit. And I go to groups and I just want more of, no, no, we, we long for his presence and power because he has sent us on a mission with him. And we cannot do what he has called us to do or speak the words he has commanded us to speak without his presence and power. Luke goes on to say, this is a crucial moment because they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. They'd only been baptized in Jesus' name. They needed to be baptized in the Spirit's presence and power. Baptism comes from the Greek word baptizo, which simply means to immerse something. So when Addie's baptized, she'll fully go into the water and fully come up. We're gonna immerse her into the water. Spirit baptism is like water baptism in that you need to be immersed in both. You need to be immersed in water. You need to be immersed in the Spirit. He needs to fully cover you. But it's different in that water baptism happens once. Spirit baptism happens again and again and again and again. It's not some experience I had back in 95 when the spirit fell on me. That's not it. No, no. Spirit (laughs) baptism is something that we need as believers every single day, which is why Paul says in Ephesians 5.18, do not get drunk with wine for that's debauchery. Side note, if you're getting drunk as a believer, quit being a fool. God has so much more for you. It just leads you to all sorts of selfishness and sinfulness and wicked ways. It leads you down a path that is not holy and righteous and good. Instead, so that's the negative command, don't do that. Instead, be filled with the spirit, which leads to righteousness and peace and joy and love for God and your brothers and sisters in Christ. That we build one another up in love. But this be filled with the spirit, it's a present continuous. You. Presently be filled and be being filled again and again and again and again and again. Which means when someone says, would anyone like prayer for baptism in the Holy Spirit? You don't go, mm, did, I, did I ever receive that in my life? Oh yeah, I think 10 years ago maybe. I, oh yeah, I remember that youth conference I was at. No. Would anyone like prayer for the baptism in the Holy Spirit? Yeah. Again. Yeah, another time and another time. Oh yeah, I'm struggling to be a loving, gracious husband. Please, me. Yeah, oh yeah, man, I get so angry at people. Me, yeah, oh yeah, I'm really struggling with pornography or lust or whatever, fill in the blank. Whatever your sin is, I'm struggling with racism. Fill it in. Whatever the blank is, yes, I need more of his presence and power at work in my life. Spirit, baptize me again. Could I have more of you? Jesus said he gives his spirit without measure. He doesn't limit it. He just says, I'll give you as much as you want. Your hungry and thirsty heart can take. Which is why David says in Psalm 42, as a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before my God? My tears have been my food, night and day. That's not a coffee cup verse. (laughs) That's a verse of God. I'm longing for you. I'm dying on the vine here. Could I have more of your presence? That's what a spirit-filled life looks like. This is the normal Christian experience. May not be normal for you, but it is the normal Christian experience. It's a powerful experience. It's a life-giving experience. It is an experience. So it's not all in our head. We need to experience his presence and power in our lives. Sometimes we won't experience him as much. We don't live experience to experience. We live based on the word of God. But we cry out to him that we might experience more of him. Simon was so impressed by the spiritual power that he witnessed in the apostles that he wanted it too. He saw it, he said, I want that. And he understood how these things worked. He was a magician and supposedly a good one. The passage tells us he had amazed all the people in the city and even the regions beyond. Justin Martyr, who is a second century writer, tells us that Simon was so impressive that many people considered him a god and some even worshipped him. Magicians would pay for one another's power and their tricks. There There was a big financial thing going on there and they would get paid. And this is something that some in the Christian faith have hijacked and manipulated people for the power of God. So TV preachers who say, there's an anointed cloth. If you just pay 1099, you can get healed. That's wicked. And God speaks to them like he speaks to Simon with a strong rebuke that they need to repent to escape the wrath of God because otherwise it's coming for them. Simon sees the power of God and he wants it and he tries to pay for it. And Peter rebukes him in love, says, you can't pay for this. This is not for sale. This doesn't work like your little magic tricks. This is God of the universe who is giving a free gift to his children. The gospel is a gift. You can't pay for it. You can't pay enough for your sins to be forgiven. You can't work hard enough to make yourself righteous instead of unrighteous. It says that even our good deeds are like filthy rags. They're worthless in the presence of God. The only thing we can do is receive the finished work of Jesus on the cross that God would give his only son for us to try and pay with anything we would have or do, which by the way, this includes your offering. You can't pay for God to be pleased enough with you. So don't give money out of compulsion or guilt or shame or to try and appease your conscience. Give generously because God has given himself to you. This is a motive thing. And when the gospel explodes in your heart, you stop trying to pay for things and you receive the gift of God in Christ, both the forgiveness and the life and the spiritual power that comes with it. My prayer for us is that we would be a hungry people for the presence of God and that we would be a grace-filled people, that we would be a people who understand that Jesus paid it all on the cross for us and that he wants to baptize us again and again and again in his spirit, and he wants to send us out into our city, to our neighbors, our coworkers, our family, and to the ends of the earth that people might hear this message and receive his healing touch and be delivered from the evil that oppresses them.